cliffcentral.com. Welcome to the WTF Futurology Show. This is a live podcast. Uh, we're calling it a live cast, so we're very excited. This is a first for Mike, us. It's a first for you, Paul. Yeah, it is a first for me. I mean, and for you too, fat boy. Mm. So, guys, for everybody who's here, it's not just the usual crew in the studio. Um, we do have a couple of guests with us today. So, um, our guests, can you just give us a quick roar to let our audience know who's in the room? Ready, steady. Roar! Shit, they actually roared. I didn't realize they were going to roar. I, was, I, I thought you were going to cheer or something. I wasn't sure what you were asking them. Let's just all, all call your names out. Yeah. <laughs> Go around the room, call your names out. It's like roll call. No, but seriously, I mean, guys, thank you very much for joining us in this live podcast. So we will have questions. Please just grab the mic as we go along um, and make this as interactive. Try and make the questions as intelligent as possible um, so that I can answer them and not Brett. I feel uh, that we're picking on Andrew again. He's in the audience as well. Uh, who's we Andrew? expect who's Andrew? <laughs> Mr. McHenry. Oh, there we go. So we've got a lot of friends in the audience. For everyone who's listening, um, we're going to try something different. And the best part about it is we're in Hawaii's Innovation Center. Um, phenomenal place. Uh, you cannot take photos of really important stuff. Guys. So that wall, that wall, that wall. That, no, jokes. Seriously, just that wall you're not allowed to take a picture of. Lots of selfies by the Huawei sign. Yep. It looks cool. Trust me. We've done a couple. Um, so I guess those are the house rules. And, and, and if you tweet out with your face next to the Huawei sign, you can have a beer afterwards. That's on the house. Check Brett's running. <laughs> Next going. <laughs> anyway, we're here to talk about the future of work. And uh, Brett, this is not a new topic at all. It's it's an old topic because we've always had to work. Um, but it's all changing. What the future of work is becoming is very very different to what it was. And it's really exciting. I, I, I'm really excited. Certainly, if we look at what uh, Keynes, who was one of the top economists in the world, predicted at the turn of the century. He was looking at technological unemployment as well as a 15-hour work week, and we're kind of getting there. And I, I think what technology brings to the future of work redefines it as opposed to just the industrial revolution. What do you think? I, I think a lot has happened, right? So I, I, we kind of miss Brett's phil philosophical kind of sayings because Mike does feel like he's making up things as usual. I am making up um, things as well. And I really want to talk about how did we get here? How did the workplace Absolutely. go from a manufacturing environment um, where we used our hands to do everything. Next thing, we're all sitting behind desks and we're pretty static. And we've entered this world of digital where we've got to change the way that we're thinking. Um, and we, there's a whole lot of new things really happening in our society, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's the, uh, the mobility rule uh, rolling through, whether it's 5G kind of changing how we work. What about um, basic income, universal basic income? And we're not going to talk about universal basic <laughs> income because for fuck's sakes, Mike, we talk about it every single time. But so there's exciting. a rule on this. It is exciting. We've got Justin McCarthy in the audience here. He's built a blockchain on yes, the no, no, no. He's absolutely so fabulous. Come on, man. This uh, is the future. You, we, there is a podcast with him. It was amazing. It was. But we're not talking about okay. it anymore. Right. Okay. Um, and so talking about who we're talking with, yeah, we've got say. Brian Armstrong with us. No, no. Um, is it doctor, doctor or professor? Yeah, that's a good point. Professor at the moment. Professor, professor at the moment. Right. So, so what, 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 what happens when it's no longer at the moment? Does it, if, I leave it's, if I leave it's, I'm no longer a professor. <laughs> Maybe it's a good reason, reason to leave it. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So talk about uh, changing the workspace. You've gone from a corporate into the world of an academic. 
Yeah. Tell us a little bit about your life at the moment. I mean, well, 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 a lot of changes, and, right? And who, who you actually are. You always want to jump ahead, yeah, Brett. <laughs> huh? Always, but Yeah, always. No, so, so maybe a little just to, to step back a little bit. I mean, I've been a businessman in the tech space for yes. decades, as, as you know. And as, as a businessman in the tech space, as you tend to do, is you go and you talk to customers and you talk to the market to talk about how wonderful your tech is and all the things you can do. And I'd been doing that for a long time with Telcom and with BT before that, talking about the opportunities that tech creates. So I started talking about this whole thing we call digitalization. But I started coming to the conclusion that, well, the realization, I guess, that this thing we call digitalization is the tech's really important. Yeah. But it's as much about the changing nature of our society and the markets we serve. Mm -hmm. And it's as much about changing ways of doing business um, as it is about the tech. So, I mean, you know, the usual poster children of digitalization, Facebook and uh, Twitter, they're more about the society we're part of than the tech. The tech's good, yes. but they're more about society. And Uber and Airbnb and so on, they're more about the business model mm. than the tech. So that, that got me thinking to say, yeah, the tech's really good, but I started to get particularly interested in this intersection between technology, business, you know, and the science of business, and the way our society's yeah. changing. So when the opportunity came, I left Telcom, and I was thinking, what should I do with my life? And Vitz approached me and said, we've got this chair in digital business. Would you like to have a go? Um, and I thought, yeah, that sounds really cool. So because what it does now is it allows me to sort of try and sift through all the hype and the noise and this thing we call digitalization and try to get to the actual essence of it and try and establish a properly scientifically sound body of knowledge. Yeah. And that's how we got speaking about the future of work mm. because that's about the society that we live in and, and the way things are changing. So that's, that's what I'm doing, and it's really cool. I'm having fun. So, so Brian, if, if this podcast completely fails, can I come work for you? Because it sounds like a really cool thing to be doing. We can talk. Yes, of course. No, of course. You can you work for me. You can, do re you can work with me okay, cool. and do research I'm in this space. Lovely. Now, it sounds more like you can do research on Mike, though. Yeah. He's quite Why a do you think I offered? Why do you think I offered? <laughs> Let's move swiftly on now. Yeah. So how has this – I mean, because there really are three critical questions, I think, when it comes to, to the future of work, really is how has um, the work itself actually evolved? And, and given that evolution, what skills do we actually need to, to develop? Um, and, and what will the future of work become? And what is the implications in South Africa? So really, that sounds like a loaded question. You just no, fired out like 20,000 questions. I, 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 I want to set the scene here yeah. because, I mean, that really gets to the crux of it. How has work evolved? Because I we've think, always spoken about I mean, the, the, the scope of those questions will sort of fill up my book, which I'm going to write in 10 years' time. Okay. Mm. Um, I, think, I think it's a massive Because you're a topic. slow writer or? I think we're still learning because yeah. we don't know. Yeah. We Actually, the world doesn't really know the answer to those questions. Yeah. So let me give you just some... I don't want to throw out too many stats, but there's just sh what there's absolute consensus on is that the nature of work is changing. Yeah. The exact detail around that, yeah. there's no consensus. So most of us go back to there was an Oxford University, two Oxford University professors in 2013 wrote a paper called The Future of Work, which looked at sort of three dimensions of how work is changing, the level of creativity needed to do it, the level of social intelligence needed to do it, and the level of dexterity or manipulation. Mm. And they analyzed 702 jobs, and on the basis of that, they said 47% of U.S. Yes. jobs are going to vanish. And I'm sure you've all heard that study, and yeah. you've, you've read sort of um, short reports on it. But then you go into different things. So Forrester have produced stuff which says – 
digitalization will create 9% new jobs, but it will destroy 16% old jobs, so the net effect is minus 9. Yeah. And then the OECD said, mm. uh, they took the, you know, the Oxford um, professor's thing and said, no, they got something wrong, so we're doing it on a slightly different basis. And on that basis, 9% of jobs are going to vanish, and another 26, I think it was, would be severely impacted. And I could carry on this, you know, study after mm. study, and the numbers are all a bit different. Yeah. The nature of what it will be replaced by is a little bit different. The mechanisms of replacement are different. But what everybody agrees on is that the nature of work will change absolutely fundamentally. But it's yeah. always been changing, right? But the, this is the, the, you know, for centuries, we've been changing. We went from farming. We went from doing high-scale farming. We started using tools, and we kept on evolving. It's yeah. just the speed. That is changing out of the moment. I think, I mean, that's, by the way, that's what gives me, that, that's what feeds the optimistic streak in me, mm. right? Mm. So we've been through several industrial revolutions from, you know, the steam engine through electricity, through linear and batch production and normal production processes. And what's interesting is in all of that, I mean, by the way, Keen said we'd get to 15 hours a week. I think we're yes. on 15 hours a day now, most of us, right? <laughs> yeah. It's gone so the it's gone the opposite right. way. Yeah. And actually, if you look at economies across, certainly across the OECD, but I think generally in emerging markets, certainly many of the bigger emerging markets, yes. product, um, employment's actually increased as a share of population mm. over the last 30 years. So notwithstanding, the last 30 years, it's not quite the revolution we're going into, but certainly from the 80s, the so-called computer revolution in the 90s, uh, the internet revolution in the 2000s, the mobile revolution, mm. employment has increased across but, the world. But, Brian, I mean, the interesting thing is if you look at the stats out of the U.S., most certainly over the last couple of years, the, the increase in jobs has come out of the gig economy, which is really small work pieces as opposed to formal employment. So the very nature of those figures has changed. I think, well, there's, there's, by the way, that touches on a whole lot of issues. It does. There's, there's a huge effect called hollowing. Yes. Which is we are getting, the, we, we are seeing the so-called middle income, middle skills jobs yeah. going down dramatically, dramatically, sort of in the 10, yes. 15% level in many countries. And they are migrating into some more highly skilled jobs, which are many of which are in the gig economy. Yeah. But then also into lower skilled, unskilled jobs. Yes. Very some of which so. are also in the gig economy. Yes. So it doesn't – the fact that it's going into the gig economy doesn't necessarily mean for average middle-class Joe it's a better thing. It's an, another misleading it's, it's stat. Just, it's just um, – but there, there is one thing I wanted to say about this um, – these previous industrial revolutions, even to the Internet one, and notwithstanding the job market has been robust. I think what one, there's one key thing that's changing – and that you mentioned at the speed of change. Yes. And the ability of humans to adapt. One reason why um, e employment has actually grown throughout is humans are incredibly adaptive things, mm. creatures. So we are able to adapt. But all the previous revolutions, the lifetime of change of the technology and therefore the market that it creates mm -hmm. has been significantly longer than the half-life of, of a – in terms of half-life, you know, in scientific yeah. terms, yeah. Um, of a human being to respond the problem now is that the lifetime of change is, is, has become, and is be, even more so, getting far quicker than the ability of people to respond. And that's what feeds yes. the pessimistic side. So is it I just the ability it. to respond, or is it the resistance to change that people have? 
Because, like, if you look at large organizations, when you're bringing in new programs, new tools, especially new ways of working, and I, like, I, I think we need to talk about new ways yeah. of working as well, um, traditional organizations will fight the new breed or wave coming into the organization. Yeah. Is it not that that's slowing it down? Or will getting that right accelerate it even further? I think, so, so firstly, I mean, absolutely, the, the biggest handbrake Mm. on change uh, is us. Yeah. And I mean, I think firstly, you know, there, there is this issue, does technological change have to be deterministic? In other words, it will happen and it will follow this. Mm. Or do we have the ability to influence that and shape it? And I believe in the latter. I think we can. Mm. Now, for example, but this, this, it's not just a new phenomenon and it's not just a big organization phenomenon. I do believe that big organizations are their DNA and indeed their structure is designed to avoid variance and deviation. Yeah. So if you're running a big business, it's Processes, about predictability, right. safety, yeah. risk, risk management. management yeah. So obviously on a production line, that's what you want. But it, that fundamental essence and DNA of what a big business is seeps through into the management um, behaviors mm. and the culture of the organization. So big organizations are really bad at innovating. So that is, that is an issue. But let's just take a, a fascinating example I was reading about recently. In 1589, um, the guy that invented um, a sewing machine or knitting machine, yeah. he wanted to patent this. So he took his idea to Queen Elizabeth I in London to get this patented because this would transform the lives of workers that they wouldn't have to do all this manual yeah. knitting. And she declined it. Because did he think about the impact this would have on the working class? Yeah. And she was probably right, actually. And yes. I think that is still very much the case, that we do have the ability, for better or for worse, to influence the path and the speed of technological yeah. progress. I mean, I think in some things like biological warfare, I think we'd all agree mm. that uh, regulatory intervention mm. at the international yes. level has been very, very good and necessary. There are other things where probably it's not appropriate, and I'm sure we'll get on to talking mm. about the Mark versus Musk mm. um, yes. uh, debate. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we, we, I think we, we can regulate around this. But at the same time, it's also about understanding the impact on work and what are the appropriate structures, social structures. And, I mean, we, you were joking about the universal wage. Yes. Um, but th at some point, that's, that's a real issue. It's not, it for, it's not for the sort of the, the loony left anymore no. to talk about that. No. That's I, I had my money issue. on Mike bringing it up first. I didn't think you would be. <laughs> so I feel like I'm coming away with an extra 10 bucks. No, you, yeah, you yeah, mentioned it first. Yeah. I was responding. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. But, but we ha it, it's inevitable because yeah, really what technology is doing is it's redefining absolutely everything in terms of how we work, live, and play. Um, and certainly when we start looking at this idea of exponential technology and how it's impacting on our lives um, and the move to singularity, which whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. But can, can I jump to, to, to look at this a different way? You know, if we don't know because, what we don't know. Sorry, yeah. sorry can I just come back on, yeah. on that point about you know, um, the work and so on and the universal wage? Um, what what is interesting is the absolute need for to do meaningful work at a human level. Yes, absolutely. So I um, there are, uh, some sociologist who's apparently like the expert on this is this: humans spend their time in three ways. They use do paid work, they do unpaid work, and they consume. Yes. So what's actually interesting is so paid work is what it says. Yeah. Unpaid work is actually not 
um, your charity in that, but it's, um, it's organizing. It's, it's being friends with Mike. No, it's organ outsourcing. Oh, okay. It's Thanks. organizing Thanks, the plumber to come and pick <laughs> stuff and you know, getting your husband or your wife to do something that yeah. you don't want to do. That, that's unpaid work. Yeah. And the universal norm for that, just by the way, is 60 hours. That is yeah, sort of look, surprisingly uh, uh, robust uh, number. Uh, it's got to be meaningful. That. So uh, if you give me, even if you gave me 10 million bucks a year to sit on my yeah. butt, I don't think it would make me happy. No, I want to do meaningful work. Uh, absolutely, yeah. and, and I can vouch for that because every time I get home, every night I get home, my wife tells me how hard she's worked every day. I mean, it's it's a long conversation, yeah. but she does. I mean, she's busy. I don't know about your wife; she's too busy shopping. I think, Brent. Mm, no, but yeah. she works hard. Does she? Yeah, spending it's your a, money. It's a target, right? It's yeah. not a credit limit. It's a target. So, <laughs> target. Um, I wish all KPIs were set up that way. Yeah, um, yeah they're very easy to perform. <laughs> Jeez, I'm just better learn from yeah. them. Just watching my SMSs coming now. <laughs> yeah, bing, 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 bing. Yeah, we better raise the rate. Eh? But coming back to to the, the 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 idea of work, Brian, we don't know what we don't know, and and how do we prepare ourselves for a world? that we actually don't understand that's coming. Because certainly the jobs that are available, that will be available, and I think of my children, my kids are 10 and 13. What they're going to do is not the world we live in, and how they work is not going to be the world. I mean, they're not even going to own cars. I can't see them actually owning a car. I'm pretty convinced our parents used to have the same conversation, surely. Yeah, look, I think they had a different conversation about you, but every other yeah. parent had the same conversation. I'm quite sure. I really am quite sure. But, but, but I mean, how do we prepare ourselves? I mean, you're now going into the world of academic. How do we prepare mm. our children? I mean, Brett, maybe you could also jump in here because you went and spoke to your rector at school mm. about this because I look at my two little children yeah. and, and it scares me on one level and it excites me on another level. Because we're actually pushing the academic society quite hard, both on getting the content right um, and when I say content right, it takes five years to get the content into the academic streams. But in five years, guys, the world has changed. I mean, drastically changed. I mean, I just I'm going keep on looking at the AI device and uh, Huawei's device. It has artificial intelligence on a phone now. Last year, that was unheard of. Hmm. I mean, how much must that impact the yeah. world of building handsets and preparing students to be able to do that. I think, yeah. I think, what, I think you know, it's interesting. The more some things change, the more others stay the same. Yes. So, let me, so let me, I haven't got any sort of pearls of wisdom or answers on this, but mm. I've got thoughts in four areas. So mm. we won't I judge guess, you. I guess right. the first area is the particular, the particular skills. So to, so to learn a particular skill, so there's a lot of focus, for example, on we should teach coding and so on. And I think that's mm. great for the next five years or so. Yep. But if, eventually coding will become automated no. as well. No, exactly. So, so you know, the, the, you'd be very careful of the skills and the particular skills that we're doing, which then says we should teach people it's more about how to think and about how to learn. Because yes. what's actually interesting, if you go back to when I was just starting in business, yeah, I was an electronic engineer and I had a few particular skills, but... What has stood me um, in good stead over my career is those, let's call them old-fashioned virtues like mm. hard work, being able to communicate, work in teams, yeah. problem solving, um, collaborate, complex problem yeah. solving, um, deter, you know, um, determination and perseverance and resilience. So those things, I think those are absolutely things that are going to continue to be yes. determinants of success. See, Brett, it's called teamwork, bud. <laughs> Cool teamwork. You're yeah. saying it like I don't like no. hang with you and do cool things. Uh, that's not what I'm talking right? about. Oh, I thought that was drinking. But, but, but move on. Yeah. <laughs> teamwork is drinking. Isn't what's it? actually interesting, and I, I mean, I use myself as an anecdote, which I'm always wary of doing. A sample of one is always a dangerous yeah. thing. Yeah. 
But there, there's this sort of myth in a way that says if we just flood all of our organizations with enough millennials and ponytails, <laughs> everything will be cool. Everything will be right. But it's got to wear a T-shirt, at, eh? Let's, let's, yeah. look at the top, let's look at the top four tech companies, the three A's and an M, Alphabet, yeah. Amazon, um, Apple, and Microsoft. At oh, the I'm time that they all established yeah. their dominance, they were led by 50-plus 50, 50 yes. year old people. Yeah. If we look at the next... Big, the next three of the big three, Facebook, um, Tencent, and Alibaba, two of those three were created by old guys, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg being the exception. Yeah. So that comes back to the fact and, that… And, so, and sorry, Brian, he even had to get an old person to come and help, help him, him in Sheryl yeah. Sandberg. Yeah. Yeah. So that says to succeed in business, you still need some of those old-fashioned skills, which is a bit uncool to say. Um, and it is about you know, being a hard-nosed businessman sometimes. To make to succeed in business mm -hmm. is about… Being able to translate a vision into a strategy, into an execution plan, to put the action plans in place mm -hmm. to measure performance and adapt accordingly. And I mean that you can, you know, that's probably about as simple as you can make it mm -hmm. and you can write many books on that. But that's essentially what it is. Mm -hmm. And it takes, you know, some disciplined, hard work and creative skill to do all that. Third point I'd like to make. If we go back to that Oxford University discussion, they define digi digital, you know, automatable jobs in terms of the, 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 the less dexterous it was, the easier it was to automate, the mm. less social skills or, or social intelligence that it needed, the easier it was to automate. Um, and the, well, well now I've, I've lost my thought, um, and creative, yeah. The, the, yeah. the less creative intelligence. Yes. So the converse of that, therefore, is to say if we think about the future, those people that will be most able to resist the disruption of automation will be people who operate, either it's because of the job they do or they personally operate in a way, which brings a high degree of dexterity. doesn't apply to most jobs, but it can apply to some. But certainly creative intelligence and interpersonal intelligence to play. Mm. So, for example, you can replace a contact center agent with a bot, yeah. But can you replace a PR, um, investor relations person with a bot? I don't think so because you need a huge amount of yeah. um, sort of empathy. In, yeah. empathy and in. Mm. So I think it's, that's a good way to think about it. The final point is I mentioned that OECD study. Now what they do is there's, there's this assessment of, of work which we've all looked at which says there's basically three measures of, of, of ability, and that is, your, is numeracy, literacy, and complex problem solving. Okay. Now, the, and that's what our education system has been hell-bent on delivering. We want to improve literacy, numeracy, and complex problem yeah, solving. It's the education KPI. Yeah. <laughs> now, the problem is numeracy and literacy certainly can be automated. And yes. even in complex problem solving, here's the shocking stat that I read that only 11% of the American workforce currently performs better than computers at the level of complex problem solving, today's level of automation. You are kidding me. Yeah. So that, so that says, so guys, if we, if we want to, and it, therefore, but um, it is up to us to learn to use the tools at our disposal to make sure that mm. we can solve problems better, that we are more literate and can communicate better than computers, because otherwise we will all be made obsolete. Okay. I'm feeling kind of obsolete right now, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I 
I'd love to get your view. Is salesman a risky kind of role to yeah. job to lose? But even, even, even creativity, yeah. So here's an interesting one. Um, who remembers that song, I Took a Pill in Ibiza? Right? Yeah, so no, I never did that. The, the, the drop at the end of the chorus was actually taught in music schools as this is how you do a drop. Really? That, that cool synth, but that sounds half like a voice. That was you put it into Ableton, you turn up the creativity dial, and out it popped. Yeah. So even so-called creativity yeah. is increasingly becoming automated. Yeah, absolutely. Just to, just to stay on the education theme, because we're sitting in South Africa, and we've got a, a massive unemployment problem. Um, and I don't know if this is an opportunity in terms of what is possible with the future of work. Do you, do you have any thinking around how do we solve this, this massive unemployment challenge, or how do we redefine this massive unemployment challenge within the context of future of work, and how do we enable South Africa to really leapfrog into where it could potentially be? And, and, it, and it's not an easy question, yeah. I know that, because I, I don't know and what the answer is. I don't know that it's necessarily a, a, a technology answer, but I've got a, f- a few thoughts on that. So the first thing that gives me a bit of hope on this, uh, sorry about the going back to that Oxford University study again, but everybody talks about things. The, the logical inference is the less advanced you are as an economy, because we're seeing this hollowing out effect and migration to more complex jobs. People think the more advanced you are as an economy, the less vulnerable you are to this issue of job disruption. Yeah. The same methodology that was used in that Oxford University um, study was used by a German professor for Germany. And the answer that he came out with was 60% of the, Ameri- of the German workforce is at a, risk of, at a high risk of disruption. Oh, right. So they, that's, they, they, yeah. the, the, you know, and I would argue that America's not necessarily from a job, an, a, an overall national job distribution perspective, they are not less advanced than America. Mm. So if that doesn't ne- it doesn't necessarily follow that the level of um, disruption that we will face as a South African yeah. economy or an African economy will be dramatically higher than, than the US and the OECD data. So that gives me some hope. But I think the issue of addressing economic growth in Africa and with it jobs, and with it inequality, requires a, 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 is, is a much bigger discussion. So the, yeah. the, the problem digitalization does is that the risk is, I mean, you talk about leapfrogging, it's possible, but there's an equally plausible outcome. That it's it's what, what, what economists are increasingly talking now about as premature deindustrialization. That our... The proportion of, in South Africa, the proportion of the workforce employed in the manufacturing and the industrial sector has peaked at about 15, I think 14.5% in the 2008-2009, and and it's not growing. Whereas if you consider the German and the South Korean and the the developed economies, it was 25, 26%. -hmm. So we have peaked at a level of employment in the um, industrial sector, which is too low by global standards. yes. And how do you get out of that? Because now manufacturing has become commoditized. We can't have a manufacturing-led um, growth strategy as mm. South Korea did, for example, from, the, from 1950, very effectively. Yes. So what do we do? And I think the answer there has to be it's a multi-pronged thing. I think there's big opportunities. And I was at a, a seminar with um, a global economist called Joseph Stiglitz who won a Nobel yes. Peace, uh, no, not Peace Prize, Prize for Economics mm. in this stuff. And the view is it has to be a combination of smart agriculture, smart services, 
a degree, part yes, still pursue beneficiation in industrial, um, but um, it's, it's, it's the right mix of that and the right policies to promote it. But it does all come back to education. So if you take the yeah. South Korean example, for example, what actually led their manufacturing drive was the, the, a huge focus on education and investing the proceeds of the foreign exchange from the, you know, the export-led manufacturing strategy into education, both formally and informally, and in the, in the, cap- the, the establishment of capacity. So we have to do that, and at the moment, I think if you ask me where our big issue in, the country, in South Africa is, is our education is not delivering. Even those good old literacy, yeah. numeracy, and problem-solving skills is not even performing at that level. We don't have the basics. Let alone mm. at the level that we have so to perform. I guess access plays an incredibly important role in getting the education distributed out there and getting our teenagers and youth ready for a workspace. So... Surely if we're focusing purely on trying to get access in the right devices in the kids' hands to be able to s- at least benefit from MOOCs, you know, those massive, yeah. what, what, uh, massive, uh, ma- massive online, online courses. Yeah, that's it. Um, surely that could be maybe, I, don't, I, mean, I hate talking silver bullets in this case, but it would go a long way to be able to get the access of knowledge into our kids' hands. And I mean, like, I really do think that the right device really counts. With feature phones, that's not the right device. I think, I think access in terms of connectivity, access mm. in terms of device, but it, is, it does come back to content as well. And so, for example, one of the big um, producers of textbooks and educational content, their model still is you pay the same price for an e-book as for a print textbook. And guys, that can't be right. No, it can't it be. absolutely can't <laughs> be right. That's right. The um, scale and the distribution yeah, so, so margins. It is. It's about yeah. getting the right content into people's hands in the right way. But what, what I'm learning, and I'm not, I'm, I've been an academic for four months, so, so <laughs> hey, like, now, don't take, take, this, take this with a pinch of salt. But what I'm learning is that the translation of content from a, a contact delivery mode into an online delivery mode, I mean, it's not rocket science, but it takes work. Mm. So it will take work and time to convert all of the material that is taught in schools and in universities from a contact mode of instruction. I guess also Khan Academy has taught us a lesson that it's no longer just a direct conversion from paper-based into, say, PowerPoint, not just video, but it's also the big data and the science that sits behind it to distribute the right content at the right time to the right capability and skills, maturity, and all that kind of stuff. That's probably far more important than just a direct conversion. Yeah, absolutely. But there's also new, I mean, emerging thinking on, Mm. you know, project-based learning, Mm. team-based learning, that it's not instructional, that it's self-discovery. I think there's a lot of evidence that says now in this new online world, there's other modes of learning that are equally, if not more effective Mm. than previous modes of instruction. Gamification is, is, is a huge topic about how you improve learning outcomes through gamification. You know, I mean, I think many of you will have heard of it. In France, there's this academy called Ecole 42. I don't know how to say 42 in French. I mm. can say Ecole. Um, so Ecole 42, which is purely self-taught. It's gamified. So if you get something right, you get points. If you get something wrong, you have to go and wash the windows or clean the toilets and you get penalties. But the whole thing about learning through the system is gamified and the outcomes of that are incredible. Yeah. Now maybe that's context specific. Maybe it wow. works in Paris. Maybe it won't work here. Although there, there's a, um, it has been, it is being done here. Um, uh, organization called We Think Code is doing it. Yes. And it's working. They've got an amazing yeah. setup. I was there the other day. They're doing yeah. some incredibly good stuff. 
Yeah. Cool. So I'm just thinking about the device. I'm, I'm fascinated about devices. We're at Huawei and being able to, there was that revolution of smartphones and it went onto tablets as a learning device. And you've never really seen tablets take off in the workspace. And I can remember about three, four years ago, Ubuntu mm. made a big play on trying to turn a smart device into a, um, into a PC. Because at least you've got a portable, you know, and you just have to worry about getting the screen there. Um, one of the interesting things that Huawei have done is they've really thought about how do you take a device and remove the peripherals of keyboards and mice and adapt it to the screen. So I'd love to kind of get an understanding of how that will be taken into the mobility space and work, right? Because now you don't need to carry a laptop around. You you don't need to be in a particular office anymore. These devices are starting to scale basically the peripheral hardware that you always needed to consume content and be able to deliver things. Mm. That must have a remarkable effect on the way that we work. I, I think what, what the likes of Huawei are doing with the mm. devices to make that human or they can call it analog digital interface mm. more frictionless mm. is incredible i mean so coming back to my music um mm. analogy i spoke mm. about that song but as um as a wannabe musician i've always known the most important parts of any signal chain is the conversion from analog to digital and the conversion from digital back to analog now the world is becoming digital but we're still analog creatures mm. so we need to interface with this digital world in a frictionless seamless way mm. which is why AI in a device is so important because it actually helps the frictionlessness in getting into the digital world. Mm. It helps um, speech recognition. Is, that's why that's so important. That's why user yes. interface design. Now, I talk about the analog to digital interface, and everybody thinks, okay, so this is just about uh, user interface design, and it's not. It's far more than that. So let's say you've got a contact center, and somebody phones in your contact center. They're, they're the analog thing, right? Each time they have to take information from the customer, <coughs> key it into a system, and then they say, okay, I've got to take it out of this system and key it into a different system. Mm. Each one of those is a analog to digital to analog to digital to analog conversion. And that is where all the that is where the friction in processes comes in. That is where the errors in processes comes in. It means that, and that's why we can't scale, because there's all these people in these interfaces. So get it get something into the digital system as soon as possible and keep it there for as long as possible and everything in between needs to stay digital. digital. And so your middle and offices stop. Absolutely. That's why the middle right. offices are disappearing, why routine work, so-called routine knowledge work is disappearing. But that is why well, the, the, the work the, dev, the device guys are doing in the interface is actually mm. so important. It's not just because it's funky to be able to talk to your personal assistant. Mm. It's because it's steps along the journey towards a seamless analog to digital interface, which will eventually be completely intuitive and completely almost invisible, that suddenly we'll think, I, I don't want to get sci-fi mm. here, but we will think and it will be in the digital world. Absolutely. Well, actually, Elon Musk just spoke about that, right? He was saying um, the problem with artificial intelligence right now is that our inputs as humans and uh, comparing it to artificial intelligence is all high dev. The problem is when we're outputting our engagement to these devices it's all analog it's all in your thumbs right now mm. so you know he's got this view of you know you've actually got to start plugging your brains in mm. and that starts getting scary you can see why he starts scary. jumping into this world of we've got to regulate where we're going to go and what these algorithms are going to start doing 
Um, so that starts getting For interesting. For me, it's, right? it's not so. The, the need to regulate is not so much because we ca- the blurring of the distinction between the physical and the the, the digital world. Mm. Um, you know, aug- augmented intelligence mm. and augmented humanity, or whatever you want to call it. That for me isn't so much the scary thing. Sure, we're seeing it changing. It's, we're changing the nature of what it means to be human, and that will change more and more. Mm. What I see as more scary is um, there was the, the 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 sort of the the penny dropped for me. I was at um, a web summit in Lisbon last November, not the one that's just been. Uh, and there was an interview with Sophia. And the guy asked Sophia, so what would you like to do? And Sophia said, well, I'd like to do this job and that job and that job and that job. But what I'd really like to look forward to is when I can reprogram myself so that I can keep getting better at what I do. <laughs> Everyone ran. <laughs> this was a live interview, right? <laughs> um, and, of course, Sophia was the robot, yeah. Sophia. Mm. Um, and, I, I mean, I thought, Wow. At what, at what point do we start putting constraints on what we allow computers to do to reprogram mm. themselves? Yeah. Because, I mean, this idea that there'll be the big red button that you push off, I mean, that's bollocks. Because the, once, once a computer can reprogram itself, when they've got ten times the, 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 the numerical intelligence that we have, they'll figure a way around it. Mm. You know? So, mm. so that's, that, for me, is where we need to think carefully about how do we regulate, what do we regulate, without wanting to get doomsday-ish and all that mm. jazz. Mm. So that's what I mean. So, to, yeah. uh, Stephen Hawking was at Web Summit now, yeah. and he and he was saying, you know, AI um, is potentially the most positive thing for humanity ever, but potentially Absolutely. the most catastrophic as well. Absolutely. And I don't think he's an alarmist. You know, he's yeah. he's not a dumb guy, and he's not an alarmist. So I think yeah. we're now going down that part yeah. of the show, right? Absolutely. We're starting to throw it forward a bit, and I want to kind of structure it a little bit more. Um, and Brett, before you do, are yeah. there any questions? Is, is yes, everyone? Yes, that's a good point, Justin. Do you want to grab the mic? They go up to the, um, the the podium there. There's a mic so we can get it recorded properly. There we go. Fantastic. More of an observation than a question. Um, I just want to go back to an earlier part of the show before you got into AI about um, uh, job losses and so on. And I won't talk about UBI. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think... A lot of the world is looking at technology and how it's changing the world. A lot of people are looking at how tech is changing the world. And they're, not, and they're looking at it through the same economic lens that we've been looking at it for the last 500 years. And economies are decentralizing, networks are yes. distributing. The world is changing in many other ways, which including education, healthcare, things that governments have traditionally looked after and, and taken care of, so, so-called taken care mm-hmm. of, some better than others, obviously. But we've got to change the lens at which we look through this uh, uh, future as well. Because if we continue to look forward using a, a, a lens from 200 years ago, we're really going to screw it up. Mm. Totally. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Eh? No, totally. I, I, I agree. The, the principle I absolutely agree with. I mean, one of the specifics I'm not convinced about is economies are decentralizing. I think, I think activities are decentralizing, but wealth is concentrating. So what you see, what the, 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 one of the, the challenges in the digital economy is you end up with this incredible concentration effect. So we first to scale wins, right? I was speaking to some guys in the e-commerce space this week, 
uh, and there's a few dominant e-commerce players in South Africa and a thousand, other, a thousand others who can't get capital, who can't get investors, and who can't get scale because the first to market, first to scale yeah. wins. When you extrapolate that to the global level, the big four I spoke about earlier, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, and uh, Microsoft, their market cap is more than double the size of the entire JSE. Now, the JSE is not some small little stock exchange on the southern tip no. of Africa. It's one of the emerging market powerhouse stock exchanges. So everybody talks about, yeah, we've, you know, the, the Internet's this amazing democratizing thing, and information equals knowledge, and knowledge equals power, and power equals wealth, and this is democratized, right? Well, no, wrong. Mm. We're seeing this incredible concentration of wealth. Now, that, I mean, depending on your, on your view, this is, can be a good thing or a bad thing. Some people say, cool, give me a piece of the action. And other people will say this can't be right. We need to do something mm -hmm. about it. But the fact is it's real. And if you want to talk about distribution, my, what really concerns me is this debate about redistribution is a national debate. It's about how we're going to redistribute from Santon to Soweto, mm -hmm. when the yeah. real issue is how do you redistribute from San Francisco to Soweto, mm. which yes. is a far bigger challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And I know what you're going to answer because, I mean, our, our current frameworks are structurally designed for those that have and those that don't have, and it's a – the mass is at the top, or the mass is at the bottom. Yet the technology is is, is shifting that structural framework. Uh, Brian, I hundred percent agree with you with regard to concentration. I mean, that's a fact. You mm. can't; it's indefensible um, or undefendable, if you like. But the point that I'm making is that uh, the parts of the technology, blockchain being one of them, and I'm just using that as an instance, which are beginning to decentralize those. Yeah. So, uh, they're, well, they're threatening to, or they have the opportunity to. So uh, while San Francisco does control the tech world and controls a great deal of the financial world as well, and the old money follows that, um, China, Japan, South Korea, uh, Brazil, uh, even in South Africa, there are tech companies emerging or technology-based companies emerging that will bring down some of those mm. monsters and giants. Mm. You know, if you think about Airbnb and, the, and the, the beauty of the Airbnb model is based on um, unlocking underutilized or more moribund assets. And you think, fantastic, mm. I can get a, a couple of thousand rand a month or dollars a year from, from, from space that is a sunken cost, uh, and that's growing the economy and it's helping me, etc. But there's a giant in the middle which is earning whatever they make out of it, 10 or 15% out of each transaction. So that democratizing or so-called so uh, uh, democratizing business of Airbnb and Uber is a slightly different example, but a similar one, is having a very fundamental impact on um, or having a, a, a reconcentration and creating new pockets of concentrated wealth. Mm. But that model in itself is being, well, I'm... I'm talking 20 years hence, maybe, or 30 years hence, maybe. But I see lots and lots and lots of opportunities for those models to be fundamentally disrupted. And a company like Facebook, I predicted it 10 years ago, that Facebook won't be around mm. by the time I die, if I live to a natural age, that is, <laughs> without AI. I mean, I, I, I agree. I think things like blockchain has potential to, to absolutely change the structure of economies um, and certainly change the structure of the financial system. And I think, I mean, technology itself is agnostic to social outcomes. It's what we do with that technology that, that matters. Yeah. Um, on, on the issue of cryptocurrencies and that, sorry, this is a bit of a digression, but yeah, no, we're allowed to, to, right? yeah. to roll with it. Um, 
I was at a, I was at a talk recently by a well-known economist, and he was I mean he's a big fan of cryptocurrencies, and the issue is once. I mean, we can regulate how funds get into and out of the crypto economy. But once they're in there, they're behind the veil. Yeah. And you, there's not, you just don't know what's happening there unless it's voluntarily disclosed. Mm-hmm. And once a critical mass of the world's economy goes behind this veil, the crypto veil, central banks lose their ability to control monetary policy and to control the economies of the world. And when central banks lose that ability, politicians lose the ability to control them. Mm. And therefore, politics changes. So, yeah, I mean, good, bad, I don't want to make that value judgment, but certainly potentially very disruptive. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder what the impact on the way of working would be. (laughs) Am I trying to bring this back around? (laughs) Well, let's throw this forward a bit, Brett. I think it's time to throw this forward because, I mean, where do we see this going? I mean, there's a lot of things on the plate, right, that are going to change this world. And... uh, uh, We've actually got someone who's right at the cutting edge, and I'm going to ask him to come and, come and join us. Um, Akram Mohammed, he's with the Huawei, and he's the product director. Um, he was actually, I saw him at the launch of the Huawei Pro, and he, he blew my mind away with some of the incredible technologies that are out there and the impact it's having on our society. So, um, Akram, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. How's it, with, that, with that introduction, I feel like um, I'm forced to be nice to you, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, you don't have to be. I promise you. I promise you. You don't have to. So, yeah, yeah your, your back's giving you a bit of trouble there, right? Yeah. You've been worked hard? It's way. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I, I want to start, kind of start changing the direction. So, we are talking about the, the way of work and the workplace and what it's going to look like. And I guess... You know, it's easy if we start picking on what the work environment's going to look like. Um, you know, how we work is changing from an open, from a, a cubicle-based environment to open desktops, which is changing the way teams communicate with each other. Um, people are on the go. That's all changing. Great. But when we start seeing things like hardware starting to eat software. Yeah. And that sounds strange, right? We've been thinking of the world the whole time as software eating the world because you can scale so well with software. But when you start seeing things like artificial intelligence chips on actual devices, it starts making me think about hardware taking a dominant role on scaling what we can do with software. I'd love you to give me kind of a view on what you think this change of putting a, a GPU on a smartphone and, and kind of how that unlocks this online and offline world together because it's going to change the way we work dramatically. I mean, we just saw what a smartphone did to our way of working. Email on the go. Yay, that sucked. That really sucked. <laughs> that did. That really um, did. But you know, it still sucks, right? Um, but you know, when I start thinking about using vision recognition APIs in um, in the retail space? Offline. In the offline world. I mean, so I'd love to get a bit of your view on that, and then let's, let's see where it goes. So, firstly, I'm no professor, but um, I agree with a lot of points the professor has made. Just standing there and listening to you guys, I was, I was thinking WTF, but in the other context. <laughs> um, we, we didn't pick that name by accident. <laughs> You know, just just looking into 
what does it mean in terms of, like you said, hardware eating software? Before we go into, into the details of that, I want to touch on a few points that you guys have discussed mm. about the future of work. Um, just today, I, w- I was reading an article um, on Tech Central on a McKinsey report that by 2030, 800 million or so jobs will be killed by AI. And 800 a, million? 800 million. That's what this report says. And That's the, first, the whole of Africa. Maybe more. No, it's more. It's more. It's more. I mean, we've got a population in Africa, probably 1.3 billion, but how much employed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm to make it worse, a billion in Africa, a billion new jobs need to be created. Correct. Yes. Not removed. Yeah. 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 So no, it's these kinds of uh, of data or stats or research that's coming out that's that's uh, making people terrified. I mean, I mm-hmm. had a whole lot of calls today saying, Akram, you're going around saying Huawei is bringing this amazing technology, bringing AI to to mobility and making it accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. But um, is it actually going to kill us and, and take our jobs, mm. et cetera, et cetera? And you, you guys mentioned a lot about education. You spoke about very correctly that we don't know where AI is going to go. Mm. Um, we, we know it's, it's bound to happen, but can we put a timeline to it and what impact it will have? We don't really know. The problem I have is that it's not just us that don't know. Government doesn't know. The general public yeah. don't know. It's amazing how many friends and family that I speak to right now looks at AI and say, no, man, it's, it's way in the future. It doesn't even exist as yet. And on the other end, you have loads of people that say, well, it's right here and it's going to kill us based on all the data and all the information that's out on the Internet. So you've got this happening. And the point is, before we can even get into education and see how we change our education system, how can we change the understanding of what this is? And even industry don't really know. I mean, us as Huawei, you got, there's a few key players in the market that, that tend to control AI at the moment of the development. And it's just a race to see yeah. who gets there first, almost. Um, even within Huawei itself, we know the power or the potential mm. it has, but can we put a timeline on what it means? And I think the essence of bringing it into a smartphone right now is we looked at it first of making it available to everybody, but also as the first step into that education. Because if you are able to bring it, put it into a smartphone and make it accessible to everybody, the capability at the moment in a smartphone probably is just limited to the camera functionality Mm. or the system processing or your battery enhancement. But it's a way of getting people involved and getting them to understand and getting them to talk about it. And if it can change their user experience and the way they interact with their devices, Mm. it perhaps can make them understand the potential of it changing the way they interact with the world. Yeah. And I think yeah. that is where we're sitting, and, and, and that's the critical point. Um, and it brings it back again to mobility. I mean, if you're looking at the future of work, we don't know where it's going to go. But one thing's for certain, and I can speak about us here at Huawei within this organization, is just a few years ago, it was mainly people sitting behind desks, crunching numbers, putting things together. How do we get to number three, or how do we get to number two? Whereas now we have more people working remotely. Uh, we've mobilized most of our team and the guys are there actively selling where you, you need the human interaction. Yeah. And we, we stopped using so much of our in-house systems and technologies, but actually went completely mobile. And we, we looked at that as an example. If an international corporation like us find the benefit in doing this, can we yeah. perhaps take similar types of technologies, use our experience, use um, I mean our R&D and everything else that we have, so let's roll it out to the general public and as well to business around the world and see what perhaps could happen. You made mention about artificial intelligence regarding the facial recognition, object recognition, um, natural language translation. Yeah. These are some of the key aspects with regards to our latest device, the yeah. Mate 10 Pro. But it's not just about enhancing the types of pictures you could take. I mean, pointing your phone and taking an amazing picture because the AI understands and it automatically says is great. 
It's not going to make Mike look better. <laughs> Trust me, it will. Right. Make you lose five kilograms. <laughs> Very simple. But perhaps this technology, you know, working with developers, and I mean, we, we chatted outside about TensorFlow and all of these things, could evolve into something completely different. Um, functionality and, and technical ability that we don't even know about, like we're discussing yeah. now. Um, you could perhaps point your camera at, at, at food in a restaurant and tells you how many calories are in there. Which will be really <laughs> beneficial for you for yourself. Yeah, thanks, man. But uh, you know, the, 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 these are the kind of things we're looking at and seeing how can we how can we use this practical everyday usage yeah. um, and, and bring that. But going back to the topic about would would hardware um, eat software? I think it's important because all companies, the likes of Intel, the Qualcomm's, are just chasing transistor count at the moment. Mm. You know, and, and saying, well, the more transistors you have, the better. But it's also very important how you integrate software into that. And if they talk to each other really well, then you're going to see that enhancement. We've had many chipsets released by many, many of the chip manufacturers over the past few years. But in terms of clock speed, in, true, in terms of true performance enhancements, yeah. each year with the new generation, you've seen very minimal change. Mm. But once you get that sweet spot of integrating this together, and that is why with our AI chipset, with the NPU, we are encouraging collaboration. We are saying we've made it open platform based on Tensor, based on CAFE. We're encouraging developers to try and see this processing power, which we have and we don't know the full potential of. Can you smart guys out there take software that can talk to this and just work together really well? And I think that's where we're sitting at so as well. So you're going to tap moment. into the gig economy, right? Correct, yes. So, I mean, like developers have been leading that gig economy front where uh, just sharing and open sourcing code and, and knowledge and ideas has been phenomenal. But I guess now we're entering this world where the scale of that gig economy goes beyond developers, goes into the business space. Could it go into the world of education? Just actually a thought on that, Brian. What do you reckon? It has moved into the world of educators to a large extent. Mm. So, I mean, what I see at the university is that the people who actually do the educating, are a lot of them are, are in the gig economy. Yeah. I think to move into the gig economy on the part, I think it's, it's very plausible that people will start putting together a package of educational inputs for themselves from a whole range of different sources uh, in different modes um, at different times. So in mm. a sense, that's, that's the gig economy as a consumer mm. rather than as a provider. I think mm. it can work both ways. Yeah. I mean, I guess the gig, there's one challenge I have with the gig economy. There's a lot of legislation that's still very out of date around all the benefits on the workers and we're making people work even harder, right? Um, so I wonder if, if, I guess, the more code, the more libraries that are out there, we shouldn't be working as hard. Or are we going to create different problems that we require the different skill sets again to go out there and solve those different problems? I don't think we're ever going to run out of those problems. Or are we? Hey. <laughs> who, 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 Am I allowed who, to say who, I don't yeah. know? I just, yeah, I'm just kind of like, oh, crap. Are knows, we never going to not have any problems? Is he, is he, I thought that was just South Africa. No, no, no. Brett, Brett just wanted to set you two up there. Just, but, but, just but to I think see your reaction. As Brian mentioned before, I mean, um, yes, you would still have those problems, but the, the work or the job becomes more meaningful. 
You know, so uh, you're not doing the mundane stuff. I think the technology and AI will just amplify what you currently do. The, the, the more human side of things, the, the empathy side of things mm. will be what we use. I mean, for example, you would require more project managers that's handling yeah. something specific for a, p- a space of time rather than having somebody to come in here and, and formulate the entire direction of the business. You might have one person doing that and you don't need um, everybody that just the, the administrative tasks, the mundane mm. tasks. Mm. But you would need somebody to specifically come in and handle a product launch or a specific campaign. Um, and stuff that needs the actual human element. And I think that is where we, we would see the, the shift mm. coming from. So maybe, I guess, two thoughts on that. So what we can say is that AI will solve any problem for which there is a training set. Mm. So anything yes. where there has been a previous example of that problem mm. or that question, eventually AI will be able to solve it better, faster, more reliably than a human being will be able to. So the question is, will there be more problems? There will always be completely, there will be a, a circum, a, a, an arrangement of circumstances where there's no training set for that, and that's when a human being will probably be at least as good as a computer um, in solving that, right? So I think those, that sort of problem, they, they won't go away, but the routine problems for which there's a training set, which is probably about 95% of what we deal with now, that goes away, right? Um, so I think will there be more problems? I think the other thing is you'll lead, to, lead towards a concentration of skills. You spoke about concentration of the economy. But that means there'll be fewer and fewer of these really really tougher and tougher and tougher challenges where there's no training information available, yeah. which will need incredibly more and more incredibly skilled people and insightful people to solve them, uh, which logically – Leads on this is on the pro- problem solving side. Logically, leads to a concentration of skills, therefore concentration of wealth and all those bad things um, on the skills front. You can argue the same will apply in the creative and the socially interactive. Absolutely, it will be the stuff that really needs to be rep- um, can't be done by a computer. So you'll get concentration. Final point um, in sales and so on. I think the the good thing is at the moment we're all humans, right? And we are, the th- we are the people who make buying decisions. We, don't, we don't, yeah. haven't yet um, relinquished the buy decision to our computers. Mm. So you still make decisions on an emotional basis. That's, that's I mean, yeah. all the research. I haven't relinquished my clothing decisions yeah. to my wife. <laughs> yeah, but to another human being who's, <laughs> even, who's probably even more emotional. <laughs> so, so that says to me, I mean, the way we engage with our customers, it's a big mistake there. We think we're going digital, therefore treat your customers like machines. Wrong. Wrong. Our customers remain yeah. human beings. We think, we feel, we love, we hate, we laugh, we cry. And we think and with our emotions. The way you engage with your customers is you do that. And the same thing for your staff, right? Absolutely. Because we're all human. Yeah, Guys, absolutely. I think we've hit the... We're getting the, to, to the end. Right at the but, end here. But I so, just want to check. Are there any more questions? Does anyone want to ask anything? I'm Andrew? really worried when Andrew puts his hand up to oh, it. Um, the way, you're the way have he puts to, his hand up. Uh, wonder across. So, guys, we are nearing the end, so we're going to take one more question. Andrew. I'll try and make it quick. Awesome uh, discussion. Thank you. Um, Andrew McHenry. Um, awesome discussion, talks, but again, I mean, I travel Africa a lot, and this talk about technology and AI, we need to connect people. It needs to be affordable. That, to me, all this wonderful stuff that you're talking about, unless we solve that problem, 
you know, hashtag data must fall, mm. be going for a while. Yeah. Seriously, not to harp on it, but, you know, this is actually all <laughs> irrelevant until we solve that problem, okay? And, yeah, that, that's my point. I mean, the next Einstein is under a tree in Africa. How do we, how do we get him connected or her connected? Mm. That's what I'm saying. Gamification, that's what I do for a living. I support all that mm. stuff. We build games, teach people how to, you know, work, save and all that. So I'm all for all that, but we've got to connect more people. Okay, that's what I want to say. Thank you very cool. much. I, yeah. yeah, please. Yeah, as, yeah, as, yeah, as, as an ex You just say hashtag. I agree 100%. We've got to get more people connected. We've got to get everybody connected, and it has to be affordable. What I don't necessarily agree with is that data is completely out of kilter in South Africa on average. If you actually look at the blended tariff per megabyte in South Africa, it's not shocking. It's not the best in the world. It's not the worst. Where I think the mobile operators have missed a trick is that they've made the high-profile parts of their price uh, of their portfolio, namely entry-level data packages and other bundle usage. Okay. It is just stupidly priced, in my opinion, and they need to get more street smart in how they price it. But if you look at the actual, the, the average, the, the average cost of producing a megabyte of data is between one and two cents. There's packages that are actually below that. Okay. I, d- I just want to add from a, from yeah. a device perspective to that. You know, it's it's. A, um, connectivity, yes, the operators are doing all of this, but also from an from a OEM perspective, uh, as innovation expands and becomes more rapid, the cost goes down, and we are seeing that within ourselves as well. So in terms of making hardware with these kind of capabilities more affordable, that's also something we are looking at. So you would find in the future, probably in the next year perhaps, that you will get flagship general um, chipsets and screen technology, etc., filtering down to more mid-tier and entry-level products. So from a Huawei perspective, also that's somewhere we're trying to contribute in terms of bringing price down in connecting people. Lovely. Fantastic. Any other questions? Jared. At the back there. So, yeah, thanks, guys. Great talk. Um, so back to the future of work discussion. As things are starting to change, as you've highlighted... Um, the gig economy, uh, different skill sets that are going to be valued. My experience in working, you know, people are being evaluated under quite a narrow band of uh, KPIs, indicators, and you spoke about creativity and dexterity and, you know, social competence as kind of important skill sets. Do you see uh, a change in how people are going to be Valued within the work environment, as in, like how people are perform are, are gauged in terms of their performance, or how do you see that evolution happening in terms of how people are? Uh, how do you discern between those that are excelling and those aren't excelling, and what types of KPIs do you see in terms of that evolution as things get more and more automated? I must admit, I'm part of the world of of hashtag KPIs must fall. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I know it's in total contradiction to running large organizations because you're trying to put in the processes to get the stability and de-risk and a lot of things. And when I look at ways of working, it's, it really goes down that route of trust and trying to establish smaller teams that are cross-functional, that are really controlling their own domains and basing their KPIs around a different set of data. So, and, and really that data, what we're starting to see is more around what the consumer's interaction or experience or feedback loops and you respond to that. 
yeah. as well as, of course, your, your commercial metrics, but rather than having a manager define what your KPI is to fit into a process. But that's my crazy-ass, weird, hippie opinion, right? But, but I, I, <laughs> I, I actually like the idea because, I mean, the, most, the worst mm. KPI that we actually have is called metric, and oh, that's where right. it actually starts. I mean, we talk about mm. education. Everything is designed to deliver against metric, which then ripples up into the uh, education system as it goes forward. Mm. I mean, the metric's an interesting... So my sense is that KPIs are a measure of what we value. Mm. So if we value... So as an employer, if we value a person that's got a metric more highly than a person without a metric, if we value a person with a a, a university degree more highly than we value a person without a university degree, then that becomes a KPI. Now, in the traditional business sense... What we value in business is driven by economic orthodoxy, which has been around for 200 years and is probably out of date, um, which says we are driven – what is the economic orthodoxy? That the value of the business depends on the revenue it generates, the profits it generates, its free cash flow, return on capital invested, all those mm-hmm. usual measures. So if that's how the, the world views a company, it's not surprising to expect the company to, to translate that, that, that value yeah. system onto its employees. Yeah. And sure. until, until the, the broader value system, which says a company's value is not only about the profit that it generates. I mean, it clearly is about the profit, but maybe it, it goes beyond that. It does go towards a more holistic version of where, what is value. Once we get that right, then we can think about Absolutely. translating that into KPIs. Fantastic. I think that was uh, a great session. Uh, I'm going to ask for uh, final thoughts from you guys. I, I think the conversation is only beginning. Yeah, we know far less than, we know less than there's more we don't know than yes. we do know yeah. and you know I mean I think we need to be careful of these, these big discussions which someone said you know we've, we, we have a lot of discussions about that AI and technology is that we are inventing ourselves out of existence I think the short term real issues is we are inventing ourselves out of a um, into a, a sort of a, a, a society that is fractured mm. and is, is the center's not holding. And, I mean, we've got short-term issues. We need to be aware of the long-term. But let's think about, are we inventing ourselves out of employment? Are we inventing ourselves out of a stable, coherent society? Yeah. Vikram? This is most certain, certainly, um, I mean, we're at our infancy in this space. So mm. um, I think forums like this, platforms like this help us to, to engage and start the conversation. And um, I commend you guys, and I think we need to do this more frequently, perhaps, mm. and get involved with more role players and see how can we make, especially from, from industry, I mean, we would like to believe we're the pioneers in this space. How can we contribute mm. yeah. um, to that difference and to that change? So, yeah, I think f- from our side, that's my closing. Oh, actually, the final thing I want to say, Brett, it's Huawei. Huawei. <laughs> sure. I've been criticizing Mike on not saying Huawei properly. Yeah, you, you know hard I practice. Yeah, you know I practice. I can't even say Brett's name properly. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but guys, I'd just like to say thank you. Um, it's been absolutely incredible. Um, and and to uh, how now you've actually comp- you've jinxed me. You have jinxed me. No, but seriously, guys, uh, thank you. So uh, Huawei, you guys have been f- fabulous sponsors. Um, what you are doing with the devices and changing the way of work and the thinking around how you uh, advance the workspace and challenge the PC era and start moving away from this world of always being connected to being offline with your artificial intelligence yep. stacks. 
we can truly see how the impact's going to happen in this way of working. So thank you for your, sharing your, uh, your innovation center. It's absolutely fabulous. Um, so anyone who isn't here, guys, we are going to do this as a standard. It's how we're going to broadcast. We're going to find uh, venues that are stunning, and we are going to get uh, the community and you guys, an audience, guys. You guys have been fabulous. Just give yourselves a round of applause Yay. for our guests. <laughs> So I've been blown away, guys. Um, the Huawei team have been amazing. The innovation yeah, center have, yeah. is just incredible. Um, so until next week, ladies and gentlemen, we're uh, super amped, Mike. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. You know what? This has been really good fun, Brett. And uh, I love having a live audience. The guys yeah, are amazing. It's different, eh? They actually ask questions. It's. Uh, uh, it, it changes the whole dynamic. It's, it's really cool. It's really difficult for Mike to handle answering questions. It's terribly difficult because I'm actually quite an introvert at heart. So. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, please follow us, like us, the rest of that. And until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.